0: Turn in your Bibles this morning to the Old Testament book of Ruth if you have a Bible with you, and I know if you're regular that you do have a Bible with you, either through an app or a hard copy. Turn to Ruth chapter 1. I'll meet you there in just a moment. For those of you who are new with us, we'll put verses up on the screen so that you can follow along with us too. We find ourselves in a unique cultural moment in which women in the workforce who have been misogynized and marginalized in the form of sexual harassment are finding their voices, and they're speaking out about their experiences. I thought that because of the cultural moment we are in, it would be appropriate to begin a series entitled The Women in Jesus' Past. We started this series last week, and for those of you who missed last week, let me reassure you that I am not suggesting that Jesus dated or married, nor did he sexually harass anyone. In fact, just the opposite. Jesus elevated the women around him by the way that he regarded them, and by the way that he treated them. In fact, in a departure from the tradition of the ancient Near East, there are a number of women who are included in Jesus' genealogy. And this is what I mean by the women in Jesus' past. We are looking at four of Jesus' female ancestors who are listed in his genealogy on the very first page of the New Testament in the Gospel written by Matthew, right before the Christmas narrative, in fact because Matthew begins his book with Jesus' genealogy and then immediately goes into the Christmas narrative, Matthew's telling us that we really can't understand Christmas. We can't really understand all that it is, the significance of the birth of Christ, without looking at Jesus' family tree, including the women in his family tree. And last week, we started the series with a fascinating woman by the name of Tamar, without whom Jesus would never have been born. We'll conclude this series in a few weeks on Christmas Eve with Jesus' mother, Mary, but this morning, we're going to look at a woman listed in Jesus' genealogy by the name of Ruth. Matthew chapter 5 lists her in verse 5 of Jesus' genealogy. You don't need to turn there. I'll put it up here so that you can see it. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of King David, and then if you were to read on, you would find that at the end of this very long list of ancestors, you would find Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Now, of course, the whole reason that the genealogy of Jesus is included in the New Testament is to prove that Jesus was, in fact, a direct descendant of Abraham, which the Messiah, we know from the Old Testament, had to be. Way back in Genesis chapter 12, God tells a man by the name of Abraham that he's going to make a great nation out of him, and that someone who is one of his direct descendants is going to be the Messiah, he's going to be the Savior of the world. And so Matthew starts his gospel by proving that Jesus is indeed a direct descendant of Abraham. But as we saw last week, almost as soon as the promise was made to Abraham, the messianic line was in danger of being extinguished. And once again, here in the book of Ruth, we see that very same thing. Now, we don't have time today to look at the whole book uh, of Ruth, but we'll look at a couple of passages, and then I'll fill in the rest of the story for you. Let's go ahead and jump into the text from verse 1 of the book of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab the man's name was Elimelech his wife's name Naomi names of his two sons were Malin and Kilian they were Ephrathites from Bethlehem Judah and they went to Moab and lived there now Elimelech Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons they married Moabite women one named Orpah and the other Ruth after they had lived there about 10 years both Malin and Kilian also died And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. I think you'd have to agree with me that it's a little confusing that the title of this book is the book of Ruth, but the book starts out describing Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi. The only explanation I have for that is when you get down to it, isn't it always about the (laughs) mother-in-law? It's a pretty bleak start, start to the book. It's bleak all around says it happens during the time of the judges. The first line says the time of the judges was a time of terrible moral decline in the nation of Israel. Of course, we see here that there's severe economic bleakness because of the famine that drives people into grinding poverty. And in fact, we'll learn later on that this family had sold their ancestral land just to survive. And then if If all of that isn't bleak enough, there's a staggering emotional bleakness here too. Naomi loses her husband, then her oldest son, and then her youngest son. Can you imagine the grief that this woman must have lived with? And then beyond that, she's destitute. The family has sold their ancestral land in Israel. There are no men to provide for her in a culture with no other forms of social security or welfare to sustain widows. She couldn't go get a job. She's destitute. Let's read on. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness, as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. And then she kissed them goodbye and they wept aloud and they said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I'm too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand is turned against me. And then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. And by the way, I don't mean to to make light of it, but it's it's almost like Orpah looks at the whole situation and says, well, you know, when you put it like that, yeah, that's pretty bleak. I think I'll head back home. (laughs) Orpah kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Verse 15, look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. She's She's tried again. This is the third time Naomi's tried this. But Ruth replied, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you will go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. And may the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely. If even death separates you and me. So there she is. 14 verses into the narrative and we finally... Meet Ruth. Now, what's so fascinating about Ruth and the fact that she is even in Jesus' genealogy? Number of things. As I said earlier, most ancient genealogies didn't even list women because they were deemed to be inconsequential in ancient cultures, except for having the child, of course. So the fact that Ruth is even in Jesus' genealogy shows how God values. How highly God values women, even when the rest of the culture doesn't. But there's also this. Ruth is from Moab. Three things that you need to know about the Moabites. First, her ancestry had its origin in the incest that was committed between Lot and his oldest daughter in the book of Genesis. Now, can you believe that's in Jesus' genealogy? Second, though Moabites were related to the Israelites, so to speak, they were blood enemies because when Israel was wandering in the desert for 40 years, Moab had opposed Israel's advance toward their promised land. And so they were blood enemies. And then third, Moabites were polytheistic pagans. In fact, they even occasionally offered human sacrifices to idol gods. God even later on prohibited the Jews from marrying women from Moab unless the Moab woman renounced all that being a a Moabite meant and became all that it meant to be a Jew. Which, by the way, is precisely what Ruth does here in verse 16. In this beautiful statement of commitment, I won't read the whole thing, just a little part of it again. She says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, where you go, I will go, and where you stay, I will stay, and your people will be my people, and notice what she says, and your God is my God. That's a conversion. That's a conversion. That's what's happening there. And just to give you a sense of the rarity and the significance of that, I want you to just imagine a lifelong Muslim suddenly becoming a worshiper of Jesus Christ. It happens, but it's rare. And that's how rare and how significant Ruth's decision is. And so here in Jesus' genealogy is not just a woman, that's unique enough, but an immigrant. A racial minority from a despised race. And I want you to just think about this. Matthew in his gospel, when he lists Jesus' genealogy, he not only doesn't try to hide it, but he boldly proclaims it for everyone to see. And i me just tell you something. If the gospel is a hoax, as some people would suggest that it is, perpetrated by Jesus' disciples, this reality of a woman who's related to Jesus by incest, who's a despised minority, a Gentile, that wouldn't have ever made it into Jesus' genealogy. The fact that Jesus is in Jesus, uh, the fact that Ruth is in Jesus' genealogy actually gives credibility to the gospel. Well, OK, so now instead of just one destitute widow, we have two destitute widows, one of whom is too old to have another child, one of whom is young enough to have a child that has no husband. And by the way, for all intents and purposes, The messianic line has apparently come to an end. Okay? This is where I'm going to have to fill in most of the rest of the story in the interest of time. I'm just going to condense it for you. Ruth and Naomi go back to Israel. Ruth becomes the breadwinner because Naomi is too old to work. So Ruth does the only thing that a woman in that culture would have been allowed to do. She goes to glean in the fields. Because that was something the poor were allowed to do. So, what that means is, what the men who had picked over the crops had left back for whatever reason, Ruth could glean. She could have. She could put in her basket and take back home for food. Now, here's the thing. The field that Ruth chooses to go to, unbeneath, unbeknownst to Ruth, belongs to a rich, single, Older man by the name of Boaz. He's older, he's not old, he's older than she is, but he's not old. He might be, oh, I don't know, let's just say 57. Older, but not old. <laughs> he sees Ruth and he asks one of his workers about her, and the worker says, Yes, she's the, she's the Moabite girl who converted to Judaism and is taking care of Naomi. And so Boaz. Guy's name is Boaz, who owns this field. Boaz goes to Ruth, and he tells her how impressed he is with what she has done. And then then he tells his foreman, he says to him, he says, I want you to accidentally leave more food for Ruth to glean out in the field. And then he specifically tells his workers that they're absolutely not to sexually harass her. Don't catcall her. Don't make racial jokes around her or any other way mistreat her. Pretty interesting, isn't it? That that's the field that she ends up in. Ruth goes home at the end of the day. She tells Naomi about the day. And she mentions that the landowner who was so kind to her was this man named Boaz. Who took time out of his day to be kind to her. An immigrant, a minority, a racial outsider. And she says, I was so surprised by that. And Naomi can hardly believe her ears. She says, you just happened, happened, you just happened into the field of one of the few people left alive who could be our kinsman redeemer. And you're like, okay, what's a kinsman redeemer? I touched on this last week, but in the Israelite law, There was a provision where a male relative of a deceased man who had no sons or whose sons were dead, a male relative could buy back the ancestral land of any family who had lost it. See, when Israel came into the promised land, all of the families, uh, the land, God divided the land and gave all of the families a piece of land. But remember, Naomi's husband had lost it because of the famine. He had to sell it. And so a kinsman redeemer was a relative who, if he was kind enough and generous enough, could buy back the land for his relatives. And whoever owned it, like if I bought it and you were the kinsman redeemer, I had to sell it to you, right? I had to sell it to you. That was part of the law. Now, the, the problem in this situation as it relates to the messianic line is that anybody who would be Naomi's kinsman redeemer in order to get the land back and to reestablish the family line wouldn't just have to buy back the land which would have been generous enough but he'd also have to marry Ruth a woman of a despised race by his own people he'd have to marry an outsider a minority It would be the only way to reestablish the line. And that's a pretty big ask. What would you have done if you were Boaz? She's black, you're white. She's white, you're black. She's Middle Eastern, you're American. She's a Gentile, you're Jewish. A lot of racial and cultural boundaries that you would be crossing if you married this young woman. And not only that, but she comes with a mother-in-law who will be living with you. And you have to buy back her father-in-law's land. Would you do it? It's a huge ask, isn't it? Well, the book keeps us in suspense. There are some insurmountable ups and downs along the way. Turns out that there's a closer relative who claims the right to buy back the land. Obstacle after obstacle gets thrown at these three people, Naomi and Ruth and And Boaz. And when you read the book, and by the way, I suggest that you go back and read the book this afternoon. It's a great book to read. You'll find that your emotions are on a roller coaster all the way through the book. But, spoiler warning I want to show you what happens in the end. I want you to skip over to the last chapter of the book, chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13, again in the book of Ruth. It's the last chapter, last few paragraphs. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and then he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a a girl. she gave birth to a son. The woman said to Naomi, "Praise be to the Lord." The women said to Naomi, "Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman redeemer. May He become famous." throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better and who is better than seven sons. Hey, wait a minute. Okay. Now just, can you stop for just a second? Remember this culture, right? Remember this culture. This is a culture in which women are seen as second-class citizens. Like, the prized child is is a son because he can carry on the family inheritance. The woman, meh, you know, that's how they viewed women. Do you see what she says? Do you see what these women say? Ladies, who have always been told that Christianity is oppressive to women. I want you to notice what this passage of Scripture says. These women say to Naomi, Ruth is better to you than seven sons. That's... Is a big deal. Then Naomi took the child, laid him in her lap, and she cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And, of course, David became the greatest king that Israel ever had until, of course, Jesus. And as we saw earlier... This interracial couple, Boaz and Ruth, are included in the genealogy of Jesus. It's a fascinating story. Now, what are we to take from this? What, is, what does Matthew want us to learn from Ruth's inclusion in Jesus' genealogy as we approach the Christmas season? What, what is all of this, what does he want us to see? Gosh, I'm telling you what, uh, I did a whole series on the book of Ruth a number of years ago. I mean, there was, I think it was like a six-week series. I mean, we could go on and on and on for hours about all the things that we could learn from this passage, but I'm going to focus on just one thing today, and usually I have a number of different things I want to focus on today, just one thing. I want to just focus on one thing, and it's just this. Real love is costly, but it's also world-changing. Real love is costly, but it's also world-changing. And I want to explain what I mean by this. You probably didn't notice it because it was such a brief retelling of the story. But sacrificial love, costly sacrificial love is the catalyst for all of the action of the story. For instance, why in the world did Ruth want to stay with Naomi? Like Naomi all but said, your life is over if you come with me. Orpah picked up on that. And she decided, I'm going to go back with my family. Why in the world would Ruth want to go along with a woman who says, I've been cursed by God. And if you come with me, it's going to be horrible for you. That's not the invitation that you're hoping for. Why would she have wanted to go? Well, just think about what Naomi was doing. Here's this old destitute widow. She is lonely. She wants these girls with her. She needs these girls with her. But she knows what lies ahead for them. Childlessness and racial bigotry and loneliness and poverty. And so she puts these girls' needs before her own. She puts these girls' needs before her own. And now before you sort of just mentally gloss over that, I I want you to think about this. At this point, these girls absolutely do not believe in Naomi's God. Moabites were polytheists. Like they believed in many gods. Sort of like the idea, you hear this a lot around like today, right? Like all gods point to the same ultimate God, you know, that kind of idea. They were polytheists. Naomi, on the other hand, was a monotheist, one God, one exclusive God, there aren't a bunch of gods that all point to the same God, there's one God, believe in him, or you have no hope, no matter what all of these other silly gods are that you worship. These are not compatible positions, they're polarized positions, you understand. Ruth and Orpah wouldn't have believed that there was just one one God. They'd been taught from childhood that there were many gods. They would have scoffed at the idea of one God. Perhaps they would have even said, it's arrogant of you to believe that. You can't possibly believe there's just one God. Who are you to say that your God is the only God? Maybe when Naomi's sons were still alive, they even had conversations about this around the table. Maybe even some heated conversations about it. then life happened and tragedy hit and all of the grand ideas and theories and all of that stuff they go by the wayside don't they and Naomi destitute and alone puts those girls whose beliefs are very different from hers she puts their best interests before her own and I'm going to suggest to you that that is what pulls Ruth into Naomi's gravity and her orbit. It's that sacrificial love. And it's that costly love that makes Naomi's God look credible to Ruth. And so she becomes a Jewish believer, not by blood, but by faith. And so Naomi's, It's it's her real love. It's costly love. She loves these girls, and it wins Ruth. See, it's this costly love that is the catalyst for everything that happens in this book. Now, I want you to just think about Ruth for just a moment. We're talking about costly love. Just think about Ruth for just a moment. She loves Naomi in a costly way. You know, you could tell someone that you love them all you want, but real love is always sacrificial. It is always costly. And I want you to listen to me now, By choosing to go with her mother-in-law, as far as Ruth knows, she is heading, she's a young woman probably, maybe in her late teens, early 20s. As far as she knows, by going with her mother-in-law, she is heading into a life of widowhood, childlessness, and grinding poverty, not to mention likely social isolation as a minority. But she loves Naomi and she goes with her even though it might cost her everything. And then there's Boaz. Why in the world would a rich, single, highly respected man be willing to marry a despised minority, buy back her husband's law and take her buy back her husband's land and take her mother-in-law in? He says it in the story. He says to Ruth, I was blown away by your love for your mother-in-law. And then by the, by the sacrificial acts and the sacrificial love shown by these two women, Boaz is changed in a way that he wants to use his social power to bless these women. And it's out of all of that that the messianic line is saved and a child is born. And generations later, another baby is born and the world is never the same. Now, I want to tell you that up there on the wall, our vision statement, you know, we talk about the fact that we want to change the city of Evansville and beyond. And I want to tell you something. It's a good and it's a noble vision statement, but that's just words. That, that's all it is. It's just words up there. We can talk about change all we want, but it's not our talk that changes anyone. Love is what changes people, but real love is always costly. It involves sacrifice in some way. And I want to tell you about something that happened to me a few years ago, right after City Church started. I went to the local LGBTQ community leaders here in Evansville. It's called the Tri-State Alliance. And I said to them, look, I want to try to heal the relationship between the Christian community and your community. I think the mayor's wife had asked me to try to do something. And so... I suggested to them, I said, "Why don't you guys advertise? Why don't you advertise among your community that you're going to hold an event in which they can come and tell me how badly Christian people have wounded them, And it won't be a debate. Uh, they can come and take a swing at me. And I'm just going to listen. Maybe I'll try to clarify the Christian position some. But mostly I'll just listen. And they thought that was a good idea. And they thought that might, it might, only be, might not only be cathartic for some people. But it might also be healing. But after they talked about it some. They decided they didn't want to do it. And I'll I, I tell you I was very disappointed about that. But one thing they said to me. They said if we want to do something as a church, if we want to begin to heal the relationship with the LGBTQ community, they said, what you could do is make a a financial donation to our youth group. I mean, they were sensitive enough to understand that we weren't going to make a financial donation to the Tri-State Alliance in and of itself, but maybe to their youth group. And I did some research on it, and I found that the purpose of the youth group was to provide HIV and STD prevention uh, HIV testing and, and STD prevention to lbg to tq kids in the area. And it went beyond just condom distribution, too. it, It also included working on risk cofactors like alcohol and drug abuse, communication skills, self-esteem, that kind of thing. They also provided free, confidential, and anonymous HIV testing. At their youth group. They worked with high school and college students on study skills and habits, helped them apply for college, helped them take college prep tests, even helped prepare for the GED. And I gave a lot of thought to suggesting this to City Church, making a contribution to their youth organization. We could earmark it, I thought. We, maybe we could earmark it in some way that it could only be used for something that would be consistent with our beliefs, like providing HIV testing or paying for resources to help kids study. You know, look, gay or not... People need to know if they have HIV. They need to know how to study. They need to apply for college if they want to go to college. Those are, those, those, those are just human things, not LGBTQ exclusive things, right? Like if I have a Buddhist friend and I take him to lunch, I'm not, I'm not saying I support Buddhism. He needs to eat lunch just like I do. So I buy him lunch, right? And I thought if we earmarked a donation for something, it would be a great way to show, not just talk. But to show our love in a way that cost us something. Like it cost us financially, but you know what? It might get out, and there might be other evangelical churches around the area that say, do you belong to the church that supported the LGBTQ alliance? It might cost us something. The truth is this. I thought if I proposed that, I might blow the church up before it even got started. Now, in fairness to those of you who were in the church at the time, might not have blown the church up. You might have been able to get behind that easily. I, I don't know. I, but at the time, I didn't, I didn't really know anyone here all that well. And you didn't know me very well. I was still new to Evansville. I'd just gotten run out of another church here in Evansville for things far less controversial, whatever those things were. I, uh, still trying to figure that out. So I was a bit gun shy. And I just let the opportunity die. And maybe I was too gun shy. But I think you would agree with me that in many evangelical churches in America, pastors would get run out for proposing something like that. Would you agree with me about that? Yeah. But let me ask you something. How are we going to reach those people exactly? And not just the LGBTQ community. Any group of people in this city that doesn't believe what we believe, that doesn't agree with us on many things. We could talk about loving them. We could put all sorts of fancy words up here on our vision statement, but it won't be words that reach them. It will have to be our love, and real love is always costly. We will have to take risks, we will have to get our hands dirty. We'll have to go places we would prefer not to go. We'll have to put the needs of people who don't agree with us before our own. Real love is always costly. But as Naomi and Ruth and Boaz teach us in this story, it can also be world-changing. How are we going to reach them? This is a wonderful thing to do, to come and sit together on a Sunday morning and to hear the word and sing songs and worship together. But how are we going to change anyone outside the walls? How are we going to show them that we love them? Because real love is always costly. Now here's what I'm afraid of. I'm afraid that you're going to walk out of here And you're going to think to yourself that the message of this book is to go and be like Ruth. And you would be completely wrong. Because Ruth, as well as Naomi and Boaz, are only here to point us to Jesus. Think about it. Don't you realize that Ruth was only changed when she saw Naomi's love for her? And then, when Ruth looked at Naomi, Ruth said to herself, If I keep my life, Naomi loses hers. So I'm going to give my life away so Naomi can have one. I will take her poverty on myself. I will take her marginality on myself. I will will become poor so that through my poverty, she might become rich. Does this remind you of anyone? Does this remind you of anyone? Let me ask you again, does this remind you of anyone? Yes, Yes, it does. Jesus left his father's throne above, emptied himself, died for us, left the ultimate riches to take on the ultimate poverty. And you see, this is what Christmas is all about, really. The incarnation of God in the person of Jesus shows us the costly love of God for us. Unlike every other religion in the world, God isn't just saying to us, obey me and I will love you. No, were that enough, Christ would have never had to die for us. But because of our sins, Jesus Christ died on the cross as a sacrifice for us. And there on the cross, God in the person of Jesus is saying, I love you so much that I will take on your spiritual poverty. I will give my life up so that you can have life. I will become destitute so that you can become rich in God's love. And if you will take the time to consider that, if you will look at what it cost God to show his love for you, and if you will take his love deep into your heart, then like Ruth was changed by Naomi's, by Naomi's love, you can be changed by Christ's love. And not only will it, will it change you, but it will likely change your corner of the world because suddenly you will realize that God loved them so much that he paid a costly price, an infinite price, for them too. And at the cross, there are no races, there are no genders. At the cross, everybody's equal. I just want you to remember this, folks. There were two daughters-in-law in in this story. One went home. One was changed. Became the ancestor of Jesus the Christ. And I would just ask you this. Which are you in this story? Are you a Ruth or an Orpah? Those of you who have believed in Christ this morning, what does it cost you lately? To love someone whose beliefs are very different than yours. Real love, you see, is always costly. But it's also world changing. And that's exemplified in the person of Jesus Christ on the cross. It was costly. But the world has never been the same since. Would you bow with me for prayer? For those that are here this morning, Lord, that have for the majority of their life trusted in their own goodness to earn uh, their place before you, Lord, would you show them this morning that the message of the gospel, the message of Christmas, is that it's not about their goodness. It's not about what they have done, but it's about what Christ did for them on the cross. Lord, for all of us here, would you convict us of the fact that real love isn't just about what we say to people, but that it is very costly. And Lord, as a result of our belief in Christ, would you make us the kind of people who are willing to make costly sacrifices for the people around us in a way that might change their world, their relational worlds, might change their own personal life. It might change the people around them. Or would you convict us of that? Would you show us that? Would you inspire us to do that this morning? And Lord, as a church, as we move into 2018, would you give us a vision for the kind of place that we can be in this community, that we would go to places that maybe we don't want to go, that we would get our hands dirty, that we would do it in the name of Christ? Because that's what you did for us. You left all of the ultimate riches of heaven to come to earth for our sake. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we pray today. Amen.